It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guy's Guy's Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guy's Guy's Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and hopefully we'll get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act based on the stories, the insights, the journeys brought to us by our guests here on Guys Guys Radio, all in an effort to help you live your best life. That's what we do here. Hope everybody's having a great week. I know we're getting into a crazy, wacky, one-of-a-kind holiday season, and everybody's under the gun and a lot of pressure and everything, with everything going on between COVID and the election and the economy and everything else. But hang in there. Take a deep breath. It's going to get better. In the meantime, we've got a great show for you today. Let me ask you a question. Do you like sports? I love sports. I love to play sports. I love to watch sports. I love to work out. I love to run and swim and do push-ups and stretching and all kinds of stuff. And it's really been a major part of my life. And I think if sports has been part of your journey, you'll, you'll agree that sports is a great microcosm for just how the world operates or for how business works. And uh, it's a great reflection of our culture and also, it's fun in that you kind of never really know what's going to happen during the course of a, a game, and you never really know the outcome. Sometimes it seems pretty obvious, but there's always upsets, and that's why they say, you know, you got to play the game. So if you do love sports as, the way I do, you're going to love this show because we've got a great guest. His name is Harvey Arriton. He's one of the world's foremost sports writers. He's an American icon. Pulitzer Prize nominated, Hall of Fame basketball writer for the New York Times and some of the other New York papers for the past 30 years, Harvey Arriton. He's got a new book. It's called Our Last Season, a writer, a fan of friendship. And it's about his uh, 30 plus years uh, attending Nick games at the Madison Square Garden and his friendship developed along the way with a, uh, a corporate mentor and super fan by the name of Michelle Musler and their kind of coach student, mentor, student relationship, friendship, uh, shared fandom for the Knicks. And it's a really great multi-layered story, and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation on Guys Guys Radio. So what else is happening out there? Well, as I mentioned, we're getting into a crazy holiday season, and we've got big flare-ups of the COVID nationwide. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get preachy, but I think we've got to, we're in this together, and we're not going to get through this we're not going to succeed if everybody behaves differently. So I think everybody's got to say, all right, what do we need to do? And the simple things for people is just wear the mask, wash your hands, social distance. Everybody can't kind of have their own set of rules because it's not working. You can see that now where some people want to go out and not wear a mask and party and you know, be in the bars and everything. And then other people stay home. Because ultimately, they're probably going to end up mingling at places like the grocery store, and then, then it's just going to keep going. So I think we've got to just, the perspective that we need to have, a real guy's guy's perspective, it would be respect. And it's about self-respect and respect for others. You know, you can't have a situation where it's like, you can, you can pee in that side of the pool only. It doesn't work. So unless we get together and say, okay, what do we got to do? Let's give this a shot for the next three months or so and see how this works out. I got a feeling big strides will be made and we'll, we'll start to get through this. 
I'm not going to get into the vaccines and all that stuff because it's a whole opens up a whole different can of worms and everybody's got a different opinion on that. But just in the day to day, how we comport ourselves with things shutting down again, you know, we have to say, all right, we got to get through this thing. So what do we need to do? So wash your hands, wear the mask and social distance for the individuals like us, everyday people. That's what we got to do. And uh, I hope you'll just consider that and not get angry with me because I'm just looking to protect you, me, my family, your family, and just show some mutual respect and an acknowledgement that we're all in this together. So Guys Guys Radio, as I mentioned, we've got a very special guest. We're going to talk sports for the next half hour or so. And uh, it's great because I love sports and it's going to be a lot of fun. And also, I think we might be able to get Harvey back during the baseball season. So Guys Guys Radio. Let's get it on right now. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Special place in my heart for the world of sports, and I'm thrilled that I've got one of the top sports writers of our generation on the show today. His name is Harvey Arriton, and I have read him for years during my uh, career in New York City and my life in the New York's tri-state area. And he has just come out with a book. It's called uh, Our Last Season, a writer, a fan, a friendship about his uh, close uh, friend and confidant, Michelle Musler. And it's a really great story because it's, it really, uh, it's got a lot of layers to it. It's about uh, a career path for the modern man and woman corporate executives. It's about the New York Knicks and what's happened to them over the last 30 or 40 years. It's about New York City. It's about friendship. It's a kind of a buddy story. And it's also about the teacher and the student. And it's very germane to me because uh, recently, as I was reading this book, my teacher, I, and teachers come to you, uh, and I'll ask Harvey about this. Um, usually they say it's when the, the student's ready, the teacher shows up. And I think in Harvey's case in the book, um, his teacher showed up many years ago, and uh, they really grew together. In my case, my teacher was uh, in a, for a spiritual enfoldment class, a woman by the name of Jeanette Meek, and she passed this week. And I'd been with her and attending her classes uh, for the past three years, and I got close to her. And very different, you know, she was a, an older woman who lived in Rhode Island. I'm uh, out here in Southern California, very different lifestyles. But somehow we became very close, and I learned a lot from her. And she reflected a lot of things I needed to learn along my journey. And I think from reading Harvey's book, what I got, one of the things I got out of it, it's a fantastic read, is that there was such a great connection uh, between Harvey and Michelle through the years. And it shifted and it shaped itself. And uh, it was really a beautiful story. So Harvey Arriton is my guest. Let me tell you a little more about him. He's a longtime New York City sports journalist who worked for 25 years at the New York Times, to which he still contributes. He's the author and co-author of seven books, uh, including a novel, most recently, Driving Mr. Yogi, which was a New York Times bestseller about Yogi Berra and Ron Guidry, famous Yankees. His book, When the Garden Was Eden, was made into an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, which are fantastic, and Harvey co-produced that. In 2017, he received the prestigious Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. He lives in Montclair, New Jersey with his family, and he is just an amazing writer and a great guy and a guy's guy. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Harvey Arriton. Good to be with you, Robert. Well, let's start right at the beginning. What do you think about the notion that uh, 
the teacher shows up when the student is ready. Do you think that has any relevancy to you and Michelle's uh, connection? Because she seems like she was a good confidant for you and, and in her job in corporate um, kind of HR counseling, if you will, and corporate training, seemed like that you picked up a lot of tips from her about how to manage your career. You had some trepidations with change. She seemed to really help you through that. And I think you really helped her through some of the changes she had to go through in her life and her career. Now, initially, I think, um, you know, the friendship was more something that I pursued out of self-interest. Uh, you know, Michelle was there sitting behind the bench. She seemed like very friendly, uh, a friendly, interesting person who was open to not just uh, getting to know me, but many of the other uh, sports writers who were around the garden on a regular basis. But at the time, I was, you know, a very young beat reporter for the New York Post. And anyone familiar with that newspaper, as as I know you are, knows that, you know, it's a, it's a Rupert Murdoch tabloid that thrives on sensational news and, you know, more or less grabbing the reader, you know, by the, by the collar as they walk past the newsstands on the way to work or home in the afternoon. And um, so at 24, 25 years old, um, you know, suddenly thrust in this position, very competitive New York City uh, newspaper market, I was a pretty insecure kid. And um, all of a sudden, there's this woman sitting behind the bench, and I'm thinking, wow, source, you know, <laughs> someone who's literally looking into the huddle on a game by game, you know, game by game, night after night. That's someone I need to know. And what I didn't know was that Michelle was had her own self-interest in creating friendships with sports writers like myself because um, she was something of a tomboy growing up loved basketball, loved sports, and was the sports editor of her high school newspaper and um, had, you know, harbored dreams of becoming a sports writer. But of course, in those days, there was no pathway into the into the business for females. And uh, so she was kind of interested in living vicariously through me and some of my colleagues. So in that sense, it was a propitious time for for me to meet her from a professional point of view, I think the personal aspect of the friendship really, you know, grew gradually over the, you know, the ensuing three to five years as I got to know Michelle and I began to realize just what a great listener she was, what a wise woman who had lived through some really difficult times of her own, not only as a child growing up, but also, you know, in the aftermath of a marriage that crashed and burned, left her alone with five kids to raise and keep fed with a roof over their heads pretty much by herself. So as a person who could offer incredible insight into, you know, um, you know situations, life situations, professional situations, uh, all kinds of, you know, crises, um, you know, I realized at some point that, you know, that this was a friendship that was really gonna resonate as I was kind of, developing not only as a journalist, but also as a human being. Guys, Guys Radio, our special guest is Hall of Fame sports writer Harvey Arriton. We're talking about his book, 
the last season, a writer, a fan of friendship, and it was really the story of Harvey and his friend Michelle Musler, who was a corporate training executive, and their kind of path over a 30-year period, uh, attending Knicks games, following the Knicks, and seeing what happened with the Knicks, their rise, their demise, their close calls, they're getting Ewing, Pat Riley, Jeff Van Gundy, the, you know, the, any Knicks fan will know the heartbreak that you've experienced since the early 70s, 73, I think they won with the Jerry Lucas, and then in 70 with Willis Reed. And uh, since then, it's been some close calls, but it's really been tough. What is it about, Harvey, about basketball, professional basketball, the NBA, and the Knicks, and the Garden that's so magical that drew you to it and kept you there and Michelle there for all those years? Well, I think uh, one of the things that kind of connected us in a more personal way as, as, as friends, however you want to describe it, um, mentor and protege, was that we had similar backgrounds. We both grew up in blue collar families. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of uh, luxury involved in our lives. And, and in many ways, uh, we both probably exceeded expectations or probabilities for our, for our particular careers. And um, I know from, from, from my standpoint, you know, I grew up in public housing uh, in, uh, I lived in the outer boroughs after being born in Manhattan, but lived in Brooklyn, then moved to Staten Island when I was a young boy and, and grew up there. And in growing up in public housing, um, the basketball courts, you know, tend to become your recreational oasis. So spent a lot of time there. Unfortunately, I only grew to five foot eight. And uh, although I did play basketball and, you know, during my high school years, things of that, things like that, um, you know, I, I always loved the game, the, the, the sights and smells and sounds of the game. When I was a kid, again, growing up in this public housing development, uh, NBA players would occasionally come down and do clinics in the summer. I mean, I remember when I was about 13 or 14, uh, the young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then known as Lou Alcindor, gave a clinic when he was a freshman at UCLA. There was a, a one of the guys who lived in the in the development was a guy named Hayward Dotson, who was a big star at Columbia University uh, back when in the late 60s when Columbia was one of the top-ranked teams in the country. And his teammate was a guy named Jim McMillan, who, uh, grew, who lived in Brooklyn. And those guys would come down with some other players who, who played college ball in the area and run full court scrimmages. And we would like stand there with our jaws dropping at how good these guys were. So to be around the game, obviously I wasn't going to be a player. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that it was something that I planned to be a sports journalist and to cover basketball, but once the door opened, you know, somewhat serendipitously for me at the local newspaper in Staten Island, the advance, once that door opened, basketball was something I found myself gravitating to. Uh, just, I think, you know, just being at courtside in the years, in those years, of course, you know, the, the reporters were right on the court, you know, in, in, you know, I'd say since this century, and certainly in this century, uh, when, when the NBA owners realized, hey, we could sell those seats for a lot of money, um, they moved us all upstairs. But in those days, we were down on the court. There was really no more intimate place in professional sports than courtside of an NBA game. No more expensive place either. But uh, for a journalist, I mean, it's just a feel of the game. Being being at courtside in the 80s during the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson wars, you know, in Boston and L.A. or with Dr. J in Philadelphia coming into the garden, those are just special great nights. And uh, I think Michelle and I both um, 
you know, we used to say to each other, you know, on, on those nights, you know, special playoff nights, you know, whether it was Bernard King and then the Patrick Ewing era when the Knicks presented a formidable challenge to the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan that, you know, the, the night would end and we'd look at each other and say, no place else I'd rather be than right here tonight watching this game. Over the course of your career and sharing all these uh, Nick experiences with Michelle and the friendship and the travel, um, what do you think is your greatest takeaway? Uh, what was your greatest learning? What was your greatest uh, experiences that you shared with her? Well, I always tell the story and I tell it in the book of, um, you know, one of the craziest nights uh, in sports history, you know, June 17th. 1994, I think uh, ESPN did a whole 30 for 30 on that. OJ, right? Yes. Um, And so that was game five of the NBA finals. And the Knicks and and Rockets were tied. I remember. And uh, I was sitting literally like two seats uh, at the press table uh, closer to the Knicks bench. And, of course, that's literally right right in front of Michelle. And when the OJ chase kind of took over the night and NBC – first had the chase in the top little cutout in the corner and then they just left the game and 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 went you know completely to the chase uh you know michelle's chin was practically resting on my shoulder everybody around the garden was scurrying around to get to a tv monitor but you know the chase ended ultimately with oj in custody and then the knicks completed the task of winning that fifth game and take a 3-2 lead and i remember getting up you know as the game was ending and uh, sending the column that had to be written right as, as the game was concluding and standing up with my laptop to rush back to the locker rooms to get quotes and, and, uh, and then write the late edition column and pretty much bumping right into Michelle. And she said to me, uh, um, you know, when are you leaving? And I said, uh, you know, for where? And she goes, Houston, dummy. She said, I've been sitting here for over 20 years. And I'll be damned if they're going to Houston and win a championship and I'm not going to be there. And I thought, you know, this is bravado, the excitement, you know, the whole craziness of the night. Um, but the next day, the next morning, she called me and said, you know, I'm on the same flight that you're in. You know, I, I just I got to get into the hotel. And we flew down to Houston together. And, um, you know, we were there for another four or five days because the Knicks lost game six and then they lost game seven on a Wednesday night. But it, it just was, you know, it was interesting because uh, after the, the seventh game, uh, Michelle waited up in the hotel bar for me to finish my column and and come in to have a late night drink. And I remember her talking about uh, or, or how, how content she seemed. She was disappointed. She wanted him to win. But... She looked at sports in a very transactional way. I mean, as long as the Knicks, she felt the Knicks were giving it their best effort. As long as they were you know, out there, they showed up. That was her expression. As long as they showed up every night, then she had nothing to quibble about. She had, they had given her a complete season, gone to the seventh, the last possible game that could be played, and uh, lost it by a few points. She She wasn't this win or nothing kind of fan. You know, Pat Riley always had that expression is only winning in misery. Michelle thought that was, you know, pretty much nonsense. You know, there there was a lot of room for in between to be content and happy with the way your team performed and the effort that they gave. And I remember 
you know, using that mentality to help form, um, you know, a lot of the column themes that I would write in subsequent years, you know, because you remember, I started out in that with that mentality in tabloid world, you know, when you win, you're great, when you lose, you suck, you know, I mean, when I went to the Times and started writing the column, you know, I always wanted it to be more nuanced. And Michelle, in many respects, became that the conscience of my column, based on that particular trip and some of the things we shared in the aftermath of Game 7. Mm -hmm. No, that's well stated. So it's more for her, and it looks like you got the same takeaway, whether it's in basketball or in life. It's more about the journey than just winning, because so, so many of us who've worked in New York, I was in the advertising and marketing business for years, and it was just, you know, pretty cutthroat and it's like get on that back page you know get that ad out there get you know win 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 or you know, there's, there's no second place but after a while you realize oh look at all these things we've managed to do and look at all that camaraderie and the ability to work together and train people and develop talent and really make a difference becomes bigger than just the short-term winning mentality is that is that accurate harvey yeah i think and i think one of the things that i know that um some some people who have read the book and and written to me or called me have said that it it spoke to them the story spoke to them um in a way that particularly resonated during this pandemic because i think if there's any lesson you know hard lesson to have been learned over the last eight nine months it's that we shouldn't take the simple pleasures of life for granted I mean, I know the things that I miss the most are the most routine things. You know, I'd like to say, oh, I missed, I missed going on a you know, European vacation last summer. But no, I actually miss going to the YMCA every day to work out and see people I know or go to this little cafe in my community where a bunch of us meet up most mornings and argue about politics over coffee and, you know, what we're doing and what our kids are up to. Um, and and I think that to appreciate the, the, the sort of the things that we tend to take for granted uh, and now we're doing without is something that, um, you know, I that Michelle preached to me um, over and over again throughout my you know adult life and the years I knew her was to enjoy the things, the blessings in my life, to not get so caught up in striving for you know the book that sells 500,000 copies as opposed to 20,000 copies appreciate the positives and stress those things um, and you wind up living a lot happier and more contented life uh, so I think that you know uh, that's been I think one of the takeaways that um, that some people have gotten from this book Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Okay, Harvey Ariton, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio, our last season, a writer, a fan, a friendship is the book. It's about the Knicks. It's about his special friend with Michelle Musler, and it's uh, it's fantastic. I just read it this week, and I highly recommend it. Let's move on uh, to some other topics, if it's okay, Harvey. You mentioned something about the pandemic and how that's changed even the little things. Well, let's talk about sports, because uh, you have some cohorts who have been in the NBA bubble, and that's that was different, and baseball did it a little bit differently for me. I moved, I'm a huge Yankees fan. I moved to San Diego. I can walk to Petco Park. The Yankees were playing in the playoffs in Petco and I couldn't go. They had no, no uh, fans in the stands. And you know, this is outdoors and it's beautiful and 70 degrees, but 
that's the way it is. So what's your take overall on, let's start with the NBA and the bubble, the experiences you've heard from your colleagues, as well as just sports in general, because it looks like each sport is handling it a little bit differently. I always think the weirdest one is when I watch the boxing and these guys come out and there's no fans. It's like two guys getting in the locker room and just fighting. Yeah, Robert, it's a weird, it's been a weird, you know, last several months. And, you know, one of the things I think we've come to uh, rely on sports um, through as well as long as I've been alive and I've been a, or, or, it's been, or I've been a sports fan is that it's, you know, it's pure escapism, right? So, you know, after 9-11 in New York, uh, we had a pause, obviously, uh, out of respect uh, for the tragedy and, and those we lost. But quickly in New York, we shifted into the playoffs and then ultimately the World Series. Right. Uh, with the that, that incredible Yankees-Arizona Diamondback series. And it's always been... Um, something to provide relief from the harsh reality that we often have to deal with. Uh, there's always something going on in the world that we can be upset about, right? I think in this case, though, and I know my personal reaction has been that sports has not been able to provide that, uh, that escapism at all. I mean, and how could it really when, you know, if you're a baseball fan and you're looking in you know, to home plate behind the center uh, from the center field camera, and you're staring at cardboard cutouts. <laughs> you know, in the, in the seats behind home plate, or you're watching a tennis match at the U.S. Open, and I'm a big tennis fan. Um, and uh, the crowd is, you know, the coaches, the the players' father and coach, and a couple of the opponents. You know, you know, picking at their sushi dishes in the luxury suite. Um, Every time you turned on sports, there have been stark reminders of the pandemic. And if it wasn't the pandemic, then it was the athletes getting involved, you know, probably at a greater rate than ever in, in you know, speaking out against social injustice uh, and a lot of the things that have roiled the country over the past six, seven months. Um, so... You know, I think that sports has played a role in keeping us somewhat occupied, um, but it can't be what it's traditionally what it's traditionally been. The other thing that strikes me as we move toward, for for instance, a new NBA season where they won't be in a bubble as they were in Orlando to complete the last season mm -hmm. is that they'll now be playing in, in, for the most part, empty arenas. I would imagine there will be as you know, the differences in the way people have dealt with COVID there'll be a few arenas around the country that where they'll let, you know, a couple of thousand fans in maybe. Uh, although at this point, given what's going on, maybe perhaps not. Um, but the, my other takeaway uh, from this is that, uh, we always think of sports as an event, you know, something special, whether it's, you know, a great game or a huge playoff game or a World Series game or a big tennis match or a boxing match. Um, without fans, it's not an event. It's only a game. And I hope that professional sports has learned something about that and won't in the future 
understand that the fans are not to be treated as simply a great source of revenue that they need that you know that the fans are the lifeblood of the games maybe they mouth those words on a on you know from time to time but i don't think they demonstrate that they really believe that and so perhaps over the next in the coming years as the country recovers from this perhaps there'll still be some risk not the kind of risk we're dealing with now but if we don't completely eradicate the virus um and also coming out of it you know financially there's been a lot of damage done uh perhaps professional sports will have to reach out to fans as they've never have been, you know at least not in 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 contemporary sports when the ticket prices have you know inflated to the point of absurdity when it costs $50 to park your car at Yankee Stadium when it costs $14 for a hot dog and a soda um maybe we'll see some changes and if that's the case they'll be long overdue i hope that's the case mm -hmm. great point um just a fan type of question um having had the luxury uh of attending a lot of big sporting events through my corporate career and also just being a fan and being scrappy i managed to for instance i used to go down with a buddy of mine we'd drive down to atlantic city when tyson was fighting and we'd wait until like three minutes before the fight would start and we'd always get a ticket ticket dump and we get in and hopefully the fight wasn't over i remember we went in and we saw tyson knocking out larry holmes but uh, corporately, I got to two Super Bowls. I've been to the NBA Finals, World Series games. I was at the Mets-Red Sox game, Bill Buckner game, Yankees-Dodgers, uh, um, Super Bowls, as I mentioned, heavyweight championship fights. Um, what do you think, and I'll tell you what I think, but I'm more interested in what you think in terms of what was the greatest, uh, what do you think the greatest buzzes, the most energy, the most electricity uh, could be Wimbledon, could be U.S. Open, could be the World Series. What do you think out of uh, uh, Kentucky Derby? Where did you find in your career the most electricity for a sporting event? Which sport, which event? Well, I would say, and this was before, uh, I think I was very early in my sporting career, my sports writing career, but I wasn't, you know, I was essentially working for my local paper in Staten Island is covering high school games when Ali fought Frazier for the first time in Madison Square Garden. Now, that that fight I actually saw at the old Academy of Music on mm -hmm. 14th Street in right. Manhattan, uh, the closed-circuit version of it. Right. And even though I wasn't there live, I can only imagine. I mean, I've had people I know, like Walt Frazier told me, you know, I mean, that that was the most incredible. He was there at ringside, and he said that was the most incredible sports event he's ever witnessed uh and i said you know even game seven in 1970 when you scored 36 points it had 19 assists in game seven against the lakers he said well i played in that one this one was was as a spectator and i have to say that as an ali fan as a young ali fan uh in those years that even watching it on closed circuit television it was so exciting when those guys came into the ring i thought i was going to have a heart attack um that stands out to me more than anything um i also covered i mean i did cover michael jordan's last game with the bulls in in salt lake city in 1998 when he hit the last shot so for sheer drama mm -hmm. uh at the end of a of a you know a very very important event um that one ranks up there um sometimes there are moments 
human moments in sports that really kind of compete with the actual competition, the, 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 you know, that great competitive moment. So, you know, covering, writing a column on Mariano Rivera's last game uh, pitching in Yankee Stadium, where Joe Girardi, the manager, sent uh, Andy Pettit and, uh, and Derek Jeter uh, out to the mound to take him out. And watching Rivera collapse in tears and on their shoulders was a very moving thing. Uh, I remember being in, in, uh, in Lillehammer, Norway, uh, covering the Winter Olympics in 1994. And I had covered every Olympics or every the, the two or three pr prior Winter Games. Um, and the speed skater, Dan Jansen, who had lost his sister in Calgary in 88, uh, and it became this big, you know, human story drama. Uh, and he failed there to win a medal. And then he failed in 1992 in Albertville, France. And in 94, in his last race, and in the event that he was the least proficient in, he somehow skated the race of his life and won a gold medal. And his baby daughter, who was named after his sister, was handed to him and he skated around the ice holding an American flag. And that broke everyone up. I remember even the, comp the competing skaters from Norway and the Netherlands, you know, were practically in tears watching that develop. So. Um, there have been a lot over the years, uh, and as I say, some of them have, have to do more with the human drama as much as the competitive drama. Now, I would agree with you on the uh, heavyweight championship. Even though you weren't at the event, I had been to some uh, heavyweight championship fights live, and I haven't been to Super Bowls, World Series, NBA Finals, uh, big horse racing uh, events, Preakness, uh, uh, Belmont, Kentucky Derby, nothing was the same energy-wise as a heavyweight championship fight. Wow, the electricity, the crowd, the people coming in like, look, there's Magic Johnson. Look, there's Charles Barkley. Look, there's Don Johnson. Incredible, and you could feel the energy coming off of these people in the crowd. So I completely agree with you there. Um, what do you think with the NBA? Um, I remember back in, I think it was 78, it was Seattle Supersonics were playing the Washington Bullets. And the NBA wasn't that big then. And a bunch of friends, we went down to Virginia Beach for the weekend. And uh, for actually for a week vacation, we drove back. We said, let's stop in Washington and go see the seventh game of that series. We just pulled up in a car, walked up to a scalper outside, bought tickets, and went in and saw the seventh game. And Seattle won. Nowadays, getting an NBA ticket or a ticket to the final, it's, it's as, out as, reach, as out of reach as the Super Bowl. What has happened with the NBA? NBA over the last 40 years. What have you seen as the sea change over overall? Well, yeah, I mean, back in those days, you're talking about that was about the, the time I started covering a league, the late 70s. Um, and in fact, you know, I my first recollection of having a long conversation with Michelle uh, was night at the 1981 All-Star Game in Cleveland, where she somehow just kind of came up with a New York Times credential and talked her way into a small gathering of sports writers, uh, which in itself was a reflection of how, how, how small the NBA was as, you know, as a national entity, uh, much less a global entity. Um, it, you know, what happened is I think that David Stern, um, you know, was a New York-based attorney. He was, he was an outside counsel for the NBA during the years 
that the Knicks uh, with Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and those guys, you know, had their roughly five-year run winning two championships and getting to three finals. And what he saw was, you know, this, this merger or this blurring of sports and entertainment at, that happened at the Garden. It was not a national phenomenon. It was more of a New York, New York region, regional phenomenon. But, you know, you had, you know, Robert Redford and Woody Allen and Dustin Hoffman and all these people showing up at courtside many nights. You had the Madison Avenue crowd suddenly hooking into this team. And what he always used to tell me was that he looked at, at these highly attractive athletes you know, who are all visible on the court because they're basically playing in their underwear. And, and he, you know, it struck him that if the NBA ever had the kind of marketing apparatus um, to really promote these guys on a national level, that the sky was the limit. You know, it took a decade until they had the right people. And that was, you know, those were, you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, who came into the league as long as like an instant rivalry because they had played in the 1979 championship game for their respective schools. And then they also, by sheer luck, joined the two most successful and famous franchises in the league, in the Lakers on one coast and the Celtics on the other. And Magic represented Showtime perfectly, and Larry represented that work ethic, you know, hard hat kind of mentality in New England. And on top of that, so it's like the cherry on top, one guy was black and one guy was white. So, it really was the perfect marketing vehicle for that sport to take off. And then five years later, now you have Michael Jordan coming into the sport and he's kind of like an unearthly athlete, you know, to take what had been a launch and sort of like drive it to the, fly it to the moon. Um, And obviously the next thing that happened was 92, the dream team when the NBA really expanded on its global outreach with, you know, I covered the dream team in Barcelona and it was really like traveling with the basketball Beatles. Uh, so all these things happened and, you know, they took advantage uh, wisely of their popularity and have done an amazing job of growing the game internationally. And now we see that with all these international players come in and every time a superstar or even a star, you know, now it's Luka Doncic in Dallas. Every time a player like that comes in, it grows the sport that much more in whatever region of the country that player is from, Yao Ming, China, you know, uh, and you go on and on. Okay, uh, just have a couple more minutes. So let's do a little rapid fire since you're a huge Knicks fan and Knicks fan, and so am I, though I've kind of lost a lot of my desire over the years uh, based on management and the changes. And once they remodeled the garden and everybody got pushed back and tickets became way out of hand, uh, you had to be in a corporation to buy a ticket basically. What was your favorite moment in Knicks history? Greatest night, greatest moment? Well, uh, you know, uh, I would say uh, sitting in my 1961 uh, Mercury Comet, listening to Marv Albert's broadcast of Game 7, which you may know is was blacked out in New York because of, you know, of uh, regional television rights and all that stuff. So, you know, I grew up in a, in an apartment and had, you know, noisy family with a younger sister. And this game meant everything for me. So I went across the street to the deli and I bought a big bag of chips and a bottle of Royal Crown Cola (laughs) and went into my car 
but mindful of the fact that I, uh, that I had very little gas, as, as you would expect a teenager to have in those days, I, I didn't turn on, I turned on the, the power, but not the ignition, and just listened to the broadcast in the car. And right after halftime, the battery went dead, and that was the end of that. <laughs> but by then, the Knicks were up by 27 points. I believe the score was 69 to 42. So, in effect, the game was over. And I met up with friends, and we celebrated with beers and whatnot. But that would be my favorite night as a – That was Willis you know, Reed, the Willis as, Reed night, right? That was the famous Willis Reed limp onto the court game. And, again, he hit the first two shots, and then Walt Frazier scored 36 and 19 assists. So – that would be the number one night. But, you know, there were other great nights covering the games for the time or the Daily News and the Post okay. that would come behind that. Favorite, uh, greatest Nick of all time? For me, it's Walt Frazier. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I think on another team, on a lesser team, Frazier would have put up the kind of numbers that would have rivaled Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. Uh, but the fact that he played on this democratic team with a ball, with the whole essence of, you know, of, of the, uh, the offense was, you know, share the ball, see the open man. And there was so many different personalities and capable players who sacrificed um, their own individual uh, potential to blend into what is one of the greatest. It's not one of the great teams in terms of, you know, achievement, because what the Knicks did paled next to what the Celtics did on, during the Bill Russell years. But in terms of being the perfect team where all these great pieces fit together so wonderfully to become even greater than the sum of their parts, of, of its parts, um, I think by, you know, I think Frazier sacrificed a lot. And in his prime, uh, I think, you know, was one of the greatest guards in the history of the game. Uh, he just doesn't get the credit for that because he didn't put up the kind of numbers that guys like Oscar regularly did. Mm -hmm. well, I was one of the things I was most impressed. I agree with you. I think Walt Frazier is the greatest Nick. When the Knicks picked up Earl Monroe, and uh, he was such a sensational offensive player, I was like, well, how are these guys going to work together? And they won a championship. They managed to do it. And I give all the credit—not all the credit, but a lot of the credit—to Frazier to be able to embrace. Uh, Monroe's game, who was a big rival of his, and coming onto the team, and they played together, and they did it pretty darn well. What were your thoughts when you watched them? Yeah, I mean, uh, I know both both guys very well. In fact, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a uh, a 50th anniversary uh, event, virtual, obviously, uh, with this, the Museum of the City of New York with uh, Frazier, Monroe, Willis Reed, and Bill Bradley. And um, you know, we talked about not only the sacrifices that Walt made, but also Earl's, because when Earl came to the to the Knicks, he was probably the premier showman. He was yeah. he was sort of like Michael Jordan, except more grounded. You know, Michael played more in the air and Earl did a lot of his juking mm -hmm. and, you know, head faking and spinning, you know, on on the hardwood. Um, he came to New York and he went to Holzman. The first thing he said, Coach Red Holzman, and said, uh, you don't have to start me. He had so much respect for Dick Barnett, who had been the starting guard there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, he, you know, he is a guy who, again, was the prime, one of the probably the, the game's foremost showman at the time. He came to New York and in that first season, he averaged 11 points a game coming off the bench. That would be unheard of today. 
you know, it just wouldn't happen. And, um, you know, there are guys who are sacrificing in, in the contemporary NBA. I think Dwayne Wade welcomed LeBron James to his team in Miami a few years ago. Uh, so you see sacrifice there. Um, but, you know, what Monroe and Frazier did, uh, because, again, it wasn't just the two of them. You still had on that team, you know, DeBusher and Reed and Bradley and, you know, other Jerry Lucas. Um, there were other guys who needed the ball. So uh, for them to, you know, to sacrifice and still play such a team game that they won another championship together, you know, speaks very well of who they were, not only as players, but also as, as you know, as, as good human beings. Okay, last question. Jordan or LeBron? You know, it's, it's, it's going to be a question that is asked for another generation. <laughs> That's why I asked it. And while I'm partial to Michael simply because artistically, um, he was more fun for me to watch. LeBron is a tremendous passer, and in many ways he's sort of an amalgam of bird and magic. Uh, I'm sorry, of Jordan and magic. Um, but there's also a relentless power to LeBron's game that doesn't make it quite as attractive. You know, those incredible bull rushes to the rim where the defender looks like, you know, <laughs> that literally a bull is coming at them, Yikes, yeah. you know, in the bull ring. Um, so aesthetically, Michael, to me, was more pleasing. I will say this for LeBron, is that he has paved his own path. You know, he's taken the leverage of free agency and basically, you know, empowered players in a way that Michael never did. Um, Michael stayed with the same team, with the exception of those two years he played in Washington when he came out of retirement, but he was pretty much done by then. Um, LeBron's kind of taken that leverage and power. And some people resent it and don't like it, but he has, he has done things as a player and as a leveraged player, you know, that Michael never achieved. And, and, and it's different from what Michael did by staying in Chicago for all those years. But LeBron winning, bringing that championship to Cleveland after all those decades, winning in Miami the two titles, going out to L.A. now and not only winning his fourth, but now in position where, you know, in the next three or four years, by the time he's done there, I know he just signed for five more years, but we'll see how long he plays. Um, you know, he may well catch Michael in terms of the number of championships, six, or even surpass him, given, you know, the kind of roster that they have built. Uh, and also, you know, just how effective he still seems to be, you know, as, as he's about to turn 36 years old. Yeah, it's he's a phenomenal player and athlete. And while, again, to, again, this is a long answer, but... Um, I, while I'm still partial to Michael now, I reserve the right to say when it's all said and done that LeBron will be not only the greater player, but have had the greater impact on the court. Great points. Uh, Harvey Arriton, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. Love this conversation. I've got like 20 other questions about the Yankees and the Giants and the even the Jets, but we can't get into them today. But the name of the book is Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship. New York Times bestselling author of Driving Mr. Yogi. Thank you so much for being on the show. Where can everybody find out more about you, pick up the book, et cetera? 
the book is available in all major bookstores and Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, down for download uh, audio or uh, to get a print version. And uh, you have your web website, right? HarveyArriton.com, is it? I do. It's a blog that I that I launched when I was reaching the end of my full time writing days at the Times, and it sounded like a good idea at the time, but I just haven't been very good at uh, at at filling it. Let's put it that way. That's no, pretty good. I've been on there, and uh, it's good to have a website. But listen, thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. Great interview. Really enjoyed it. There's so much more I want to ask you. Maybe we can do it again at some point. But uh, thank you so much for being here. Really enjoyed it, Robert. I uh, thank you for having me. Robert Manny's The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a fast-paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps. It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, that was a fantastic conversation with one of our generation's iconic sports writers, Harvey Arriton. The name of the book, again, is Our Last Season. And I'm so pleased that Harvey's on the show because he is a Hall of Fame sports writer. He's a Pulitzer Prize-nominated sports writer. And he's a great guy. and He's a guy's guy. And it was such a fun conversation. And... The really cool thing is Harvey has agreed to come back to the show in the spring. We're going to talk about another one of his great books, and it's called Driving Mr. Yogi. It's about the Yankees, Yogi Berra, Ron Guidry, their relationship. And uh, that should be a lot of fun to kick off the baseball season next spring. So what did we learn from Harvey today, our conversation? Well, I think the one thing we could take away beyond you know, the great story about the Knicks, beyond the uh, mentorship story between him and Michelle, and beyond the whole uh, career arc of Harvey's life, because it's, it's kind of memoir, autobiography aspects to the book, I think we learned that uh, in today's marketplace, uh, managing your career, you've got to be flexible. And you've got to look at opportunities uh, that may not look the greatest on face value, but may turn out to be something that you can really leverage and add to your kind of another arrow in your quiver, quiver so to speak. Because unlike past generations, for instance, my dad worked at the same company for 40 years. He worked his way up to the top. He had a great career, retired with a nice pension. And we don't see that too often nowadays. People have a lot of different jobs. They switch industries. And it's a matter of uh, developing a set of skills and then adding to them and having some special specializations in there that you can leverage moving industry to industry or category to category depending on what type of work you do. And I think the key is, the key takeaway is you've got to be flexible and look at the long-term uh, potential outcomes. And it, if something is offered to you that doesn't exactly fit what you were thinking about at face value, think again and be open-minded about it because flexibility is a trait that people really need nowadays in terms of not only dealing with their careers but dealing with our crazy world and life in general. So, Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA Radio in Southern California, 102.3, 
106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The podcast drops worldwide on over 25 platforms on Thursday, as well as my YouTube show, uh, at Robert Manny, Guys Guys TV. So if you go on YouTube, just look up my name, Robert Manny, and you can watch the shows there. So you can also find out more about all everything Guys Guy on my website, robertmanny, M-A-N-N-I dot com. We've got over 300 blog posts about everything about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, relationships, health, diet, fitness, wellness, career management, wealth management, dealing with, you know, how do you use the time with the COVID, uh, some travel blogs in there too, and it's a lot of fun stuff, and it's all free, and you can also download three free chapters of my novel, which is the source material for everything Guys Guys. It's called The Guys Guys Guide to Love. It's an entourage kind of book about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money in New York City the city where they play for keeps, and it's been called the male successor to Sex and the City by iconic 20th century author Dan Wakefield, and you can pick that up on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Guys, guys, guide to love. So I hope you can check that out. Actually, pretty good stocking stuffer. The book's been out for a while, but it's selling, and uh, probably because we talk about it on the show, and people like it. So I've got a a lot of great feedback on that, and it's... uh, it's a real pleasure if you can put a product out there that people get some enjoyment out of. So thrilled about that. You can also catch me all over social media, on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and we're there. So reach out to me, friend me, you know, follow me, whatever you choose, and you know, we'll just keep rocking and rolling. So we're here again on KCAA Radio. Guys Guys Radio, Wednesday nights, and then you can catch the shows. You can stream them, you can download, you can subscribe, you can rate. Whatever you want to do, we're here for you, Guys Guys Radio. So thanks so much for listening, and we've got another great show coming up next week. And until then, like I always like to say, Guys Guys, finish first.